I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer and my guest this week is a friend of mine. She's a functional medicine practitioner. She's a very, very knowledgeable woman. We actually recorded for just under an hour. So I've split this episode into two parts. So today is part one. A bit about Victoria. She's trained in functional medicine by the Cresser Institute. She's got qualifications as a naturopath, a nutritionist and a health coach. And she runs an integrative medicine practice in London, which she's done for over five years. And she's sought out globally, in particular for her specialism in complex genetic connective tissue disorders, which is something she herself has suffered from, which we talk about in this episode. But... She also works collaboratively with leading experts across various fields of medicine, providing holistic nutrition and lifestyle recommendations for a whole spectrum of patients, those dealing with cancer, neurodegeneration, autoimmunity, chronic illness, genetically inherited conditions, all the way through to those focused on health optimization, performance goals or longevity. So a broad remit, but she really is an expert and has an enormous amount of knowledge. We only just tapped into a little bit of it, really. She uses the most up-to-date testing and assessment technologies combined with a unique blend of psychotherapeutic and coaching techniques as she supports patients by achieving their goals or helping them achieve their goals by approaching healthcare through the lens of a systems biology and personalized effective solution-based approach. And we talk about all of that in the episode. So in this part one, we talk about Victoria's story her own personal experiences and how they've shaped and informed what she does now. We talk a bit about inflammation and its most basic sort of fundamental definitions. We talk about eustress, which is a positive form of stress, hormetic stress, and explain what that is, versus distress. We talk about the role of the autonomic nervous system as well in inflammation and in systems biology. So we cover quite a bit. If you are coming to this and you're interested in a bit more about Victoria as well, we did do a previous episode with her some months ago now with Dr. Tamsin Lewis and Dr. Alberto Petusa. So if you've heard her voice before, we have had her on the show, but not one-to-one. So I think you're going to really enjoy this. Kick back, relax. Here's Victoria Fenton. Victoria, welcome to the show. Or welcome back, I should say. Yeah, it's lovely to be here. Yeah, well, you're the main player now. You could argue you had a bit part last time. (laughs) And here you are, centre stage. So thanks for making the time. I really appreciate it. Listeners of the show will have heard your voice before, as I will link to that previous episode. It was probably about eight, nine months ago now with Tamsin Lewis and Dr. Alberto Petusa. But it'd be really great to hear about your story into functional medicine because it's a good one. (laughs) So would you be happy to tell that to us? Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people in functional medicine have a personal health story, which leads them in that direction. And for me, it's quite an extreme one. And essentially, I got incredibly unwell at 17. I was violently sick one night, uh, normal bug whilst I was abroad on holiday, and never really recovered. From that moment, I couldn't really keep food down. I was just not well. And 
a long and strange journey later with a lot of misdiagnoses and a lot of people not really understanding what was happening for me led to an eventual diagnosis of a genetic connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is basically where your connective tissue is too lax, too stretchy, too flexible. And for me, it actually transpires that that night when I was sick, I actually ruptured my esophagus. Wow. So the connective tissue all over the body? Yes. Many tissue and many people will understand hypermobility so they're people who are really flexible and I have a little bit of that but there's different types where it's segmented into which type of your collagen is actually that elastic and for me I have something called classic Ehlers-Danlos syndrome which means that a lot of my internal organs and my vasculature so my veins can be quite stretchy and don't do what they're supposed to do they don't squeeze in the right way basically it gives you all sorts of issues from organ issues to just vein issues so blood pressure issues and and nervous system issues so there's quite a lot within that kind of diagnosis which for me when I got it explained so much of my history and what I'd felt and been through in my entire life actually not just in that eight years. That's what I was going to ask is this something you were born with? Yes, it's genetic. So effectively, when we look back, nobody else in my history had been diagnosed formally, but there's quite a few sort of big hitter symptoms, if you like, mainly easy bruising and people who are flexible and all of that sort of thing. When you look through my maternal lines, my mother, my grandmother, there is a lot in there where you think, "Mm, this sound, now I know about it because I never heard of it at the time. There's a lot in my history which suggests that it is an inherited condition. Mm. So... But of course, when you get a diagnosis, you expect to have help. You expect, oh my God, there's going to be treatment, medication. I'm going to be able to take something that's going to make me feel better. And in that intervening period, I'd lost well loads of weight. I'd become very, very unwell, very thin. I'd had to be tube fed for a while because I literally couldn't digest wow. food. I'd had a peg inserted straight into my stomach because I couldn't swallow, couldn't digest food. So there's, there was a lot. And I just expected at the end of that to be presented with this perfect prescription from the conventional medical system of how to then behave and heal. And it wasn't there through no fault of their own, just through a lack of understanding and the very specific way that conventional medicine deals with health is very a pill for an ill, basically. So mm. if there's an illness, if we can find a medication to circumvent that, to support it, to change the way the body's working, then we will. Yeah. The biggest issue in my health is that my nervous system is involved too, which means my immune system is involved, which means that medications and even supplements and things, I can react really easily to them. So I reacted horrifically to all the medical solutions. And I sort of had a, a moment where it was like, there has to be a way to make this work. I can't believe that my body would be totally broken and not able to eat, to live a life, basically. Mm. And I think that was the moment that started my exploration, particularly to begin with into nutrition, because all of my stuff was kind of gastrointestinal based. So I thought, how do I eat? So as soon as you start into nutritional medicine... You very quickly find, for me in particular, that systems biology is involved, as in how do all these systems talk to one another? How how does the brain tell the gut to do what it's doing? And how can this be affected by all sorts of factors? So then you get into systems biology. And by the time you're at systems biology and looking for root causes, you arrive at functional medicine. So that's how I got to studying functional medicine. So how easy was it to find someone who understood that he was happy to move away from that pill for an ill into the systems biology or the functional medicine area? Is it still quite 
I don't want to say revelationary, but the conventional medicine is still very much the pill for the ill, the trauma type medication. The arm hurts, treat the arm, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So how easy was it to find someone of that philosophy? It was impossible. So I trained myself. Right. I literally, I became a practitioner because I couldn't find the me that I needed. Right. So I had to learn that's why I do this. And luckily I've got a bit of a systems brain. So my brain just thinks in, in patterns and systems, which is, is quite handy for what I do. But effectively there was bits of information, but there was a lot of disparate information. So people championing one kind of diet or one kind of approach, lifestyle approach, but there wasn't the kind of scientific understanding across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I sort of learned from a lot of different areas to build up this kind of picture of, okay, so this is how biochemistry and, you know, physiology and neurology and endocrinology, this is how it all works. And if that's how it works, I must be able to retrofit that onto me. And I also realized that I could then apply it to other patients and actually help a lot because it's all systems. And I think it is changing slightly. So I have quite a lot of GPs and doctors approaching me now and saying, look, train me in your headspace, because that's the thing with functional medicine. It's not what can it treat? It's that it can treat everything. It's just a different thought process. So it's a whole different way of looking at biochemistry. Mm. And people are getting interested because I think people are starting to realize that nutrition supplements or, you know, good lifestyle practices actually have a lot of health benefits. And it's about understanding where to pull which lever in order to improve health. So Mm. that's kind of what I ended up doing. Wow. And where are you at with your health now? I have good days and bad days. Generally, I'm incredibly healthy. So in effect, I, when you look at where I have been, people meet me and they don't know I've got any health conditions at all. And that's nice in some ways, but it's also challenging because people expect me to be able to do everything that everybody else does. And whilst I can, I have days where if things aren't managed appropriately, I can be really sick, physically sick again. You know, my esophagus is healed, but there's issues with that, given the fact that every time I heal, it's with faulty collagen and faulty connective tissue. Mm. Always a consideration whenever you have an injury or a sprain or a cut, you are healing with not healthy tissue effectively. Mm. but I manage quite a lot of my reactivity I run a business I have a social life I've got back to all my music and my singing so effectively there's positivity and I feel very healthy most of the time but the biggest thing I have to manage is stress because stress puts all of my system on high alert and from high alert all of the problems can then Mm. go forth basically yeah. And that brings us to the topic of this podcast, which is inflammation. And obviously stress is a cause of inflammation. But before we go into all of that, and I've talked a lot about inflammation recently, and, I, and I'm, I'm a lay person, which is why I wanted to get you on and as an expert and talk about what is it? Because it's not in and of itself a bad thing, is it? There are situations in which we want to be inflamed in response to a cut, for example. So take us all the way to kind of the very basics though. What is inflammation? And let's start there. Okay. So inflammation is actually technically it's a set of physiological responses that occur in response to a stressor of any kind real or Mm -hmm. as well so it can be an actual stressor or something that is just perceived to be a stressor and within that set of physiological responses there is a signal to respond and then inflammation itself is 
essentially a whole load of chemicals that go around your bloodstream that create a reaction at the point of injury, for example, with a cut. So it can create heat, swelling, draws water to the area. But effectively, it's just a whole load of compounds that your body releases when it thinks, oh, we're under threat. There's been some damage. Let's send a marshal a load of troops and send them all to the area. And as part of that protective response, inflammation, so swelling, heat, all of those kind of things that we associate with inflammation is the net result. Mm. Okay. So it's a healthy scenario most of the time. Let's talk about some of the, the factors that can cause inflammation in a negative sense. What would they be? Okay. So within inflammation in a negative sense, we tend to associate chronic inflammation with the negative side effects. So a normal inflammatory response tends to be in an acute setting where there is a need to have an instant and fairly extreme physiological instant response. Mm-hmm. When that goes on a long time, maybe not to the same severity, so you're not always red and hot and swollen, but there's, there's just this constant underlying chronic inflammation that can be really problematic for the physiology. And in essence, Stress is one of the loaded terms within this discussion and is highly linked to inflammation because stress can be a virus, a bacteria, a toxin coming into your system that your body needs to deal with. And very effectively, our immune systems will get on top of that. Say, for example, when you have a cold and you're feeling all those kind of throat issues and the scratching and the pain, that's inflammation is what you're feeling, all the tightness and all the horrible all right. And all the catarrh that comes out when you're, you're blowing your nose, etc. that's not particularly the bacteria or the virus itself. That's your body going, oh, how can we flush this out? Let's send inflammation and cause oh, interesting. quite extreme responses. Yeah. But the imperceptible long-term low-dose stress that we can associate with a lot of factors in our life. So this tends to be the more emotional stresses. So that can be work stress, financial stress, relationship stress, social stress. All of that can play into this kind of lower-dose, long-term inflammatory background in which context you have to respect that everything within the body has a cost to it. So to create all of these immune chemicals, there's a cost associated with it. So it's an energetically draining process. And if your body is constantly in that state of, oh, there's something wrong, there's something we have to stress about, let's have a background of inflammation, you can start to see when you think about it in that way, that that has a cost to the body as a whole and what you're able to do in terms of what else you've got left, what's what's spare in essence for you know being chilled out and resting. Mm. And it just pushes your entire body into this we call it a sympathetic nervous system response. And don't be fooled by the soft and lovely cuddly name of sympathetic. Yeah, just explain that. Just explain a bit about the autonomic nervous system, please. Yeah, so the autonomic nervous system is, well, it's incredibly complex, but actually you can simplify it quite nicely into it having two, in essence, two branches. Autonomic means it's automatic. You don't need to think about it. It is not something that is consciously necessary for you to instruct You can consciously influence it, but that's a different thing. So it happens in the background. So it's what helps you do life in essence, but it has two branches and they can be broken up into sympathetic and parasympathetic. And in that balance, you essentially have the two different modes of life. So one, the sympathetic is the fight or flight response. Cortisol driven, adrenaline driven, it's very attacking. And we now actually include freeze in that. So fight, flight, freeze. It's all to do with stress responding. Mm -hmm. Parasympathetic is the converse. So it's rest, digest, it's healing, it's regeneration. It's what you need to be into to actually digest food and to sleep. 
So the, the counterbalance, they can't both be on at the same time. They kind of have to exist in the seesaw. And when you're in this inflammatory state that we're talking about, you are definitely tipped on that seesaw towards being more sympathetic dominant is what we tend to call it. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. You were saying about sympathetic. Yes. So the sympathetic nervous system will push your entire body into fight or flight mode. And from that state, you kind of need good justifiable evidence for you to calm down. And this is the way I tend to understand biology as a whole. Your body doesn't do anything for the wrong reasons. It doesn't make mistakes generally. It's not stupid. It's actually responding quite intelligently to the environment that it's presented with. So anybody who is particularly stressed or dealing with a lot of stressors, if you like, is naturally going into sympathetic dominant mode because they feel like they have to. Mm. So to tell somebody who's stressed just to chill out, they don't have the biochemical ability to do that because they're actually defending and protecting themselves using all these inflammatory and immune chemicals because it's entirely a healing and protective response built to defend us against threats. Yeah, I think that we have it in modern life is that threat has become a very much bigger term as in we have a lot more social stresses we have a lot more financial pressures etc and so threat becomes bigger and broader so a lot of the time we are spending our lives in this sympathetic dominance in which I call it the preemptive strike as in as soon as you even have the slightest hint of something that might be a stressor if you're locked in this kind of sympathetic drive you will create a massive response and the the Mm. default response to the body is that inflammatory chemical soup of let's just send a load of inflammatory markers around to protect ourselves yeah and in that, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, that sympathetic dominant response, there's quite a few things that happen in the body, isn't there? Blood is diverted away from, for example, the stomach and down to the limbs and extremities. Blood pressure goes up, heart rate goes up. The liver, I believe, releases glycogen into the blood to fuel us for that response, mm-hmm. which so then you're in an elevated blood sugar situation, but there isn't actually any real threat necessarily anyway. Perception is a key thing. Mm-hmm. Anything else that goes on apart from those four things? It's a whole chemical soup of what happens, actually, really. So, yes, you're right about the glycogen. Insulin gets involved because cortisol and insulin are highly related. And I actually like to think about this in storylines. So instead of the biochemistry, it's much better to think about it in terms of like, okay, so if I was running from a saber-toothed tiger, because that's what we're talking about in sympathetic mode, you would have to do exactly what you said, put blood into the heart and the extremities to literally run. But also you want loads of stress chemicals. You want adrenaline. You want all of the go faster types of the human body to literally get away from that stress. So biochemically, anything that is, you know, supportive or resting, weight maintenance, metabolism, all of that stuff kind of disappears into the background of priority hormones that are not related to the drive so tends to be sex hormones and and anything that's kind of soft in terms of management tends to just be forgotten about because you're you're in a state of emergency so everything Mm. relevant will be done by the human body okay so it leaves us in, in an inflammatory state how long does it take for the body to calm down from that So it's interesting, actually, and there's a really good point about inflammation and when it's good. So you would think in the context of everything that I've said already, that the worst thing in the world for your body would be to willingly put yourself in an inflammatory state. But actually, Mm -hmm. we recommend that as a daily practice or a regular practice in exercise. Like we say, 
go do exercise willingly create inflammation. Yeah. And there's a real reason for that. It's because the recovery after that inflammation created by exercise is so beneficial to the human body. And again, it's all to do with the hormones released and how your body heals from that pretty acute stressor of an inflammatory exercise activity is hugely restorative. But if you want to test blood sugar and cortisol and try to get a picture of how a person's doing, don't ever do it within half an hour of exercise because they'll be through, they'll be really high. And that's because it's a natural stress response. And in that situation, it depends on the activity, obviously, but within an hour or so, things are back to normal. In fact, things dip below normal. The body will like pull you out of that stress state and inflamed state lower than your normal baseline. And then you will level off back at a kind of homeostasis, we call it, which is balance. Yeah. So that's interesting because I wore a um, Dexcom G6, the continual blood glucose monitor for about 20 days. <laughs> and I'd wake up in the morning, there'd be a little, little bit of increase in blood sugar. Then on the days that I was working out, I'd go to the gym and there'd be a spike of blood sugar uh, after I got warmed up and started boxing typically. And then it would drop, roughly drop after I'd finished and come up again a little bit and then drop again. So pretty much what you're saying there. And I guess that, that's because, as we've just said, you know, you get that release of blood sugar, that release of, sorry, that release of glycogen into the blood that spikes up our blood sugar from being in that elevated sympathetic dominant state. And you need it. So effectively, you're saying to your body, I'm stressed because I'm doing a boxing workout. Can I have a bit more sugar, fuel, essentially, to do this boxing workout? Because it's yeah. glycolytic, we call it. It's particularly boxing, it's got a high glycolytic. And I do it fasted as well. I don't know if that has a bearing on it. It does a little bit. Fasted training versus unfasted training, you could start an argument in any gym about that. There are benefits and consequences to both. But if you don't have fuel in the system, your liver needs to release the glycogen because there's not that easy access glycogen from the bloodstream because you've just eaten a banana or whatever yeah yeah it's going to spike that because it's necessary and so many things about human biochemistry are necessary responses that we shouldn't seek to pull down so for example mm. when you're talking about exercise and there's a lot of talk about exercise recovery in terms of taking supplements so you can take vitamin c or curcumin to reduce inflammation or doing inflammation lowering practices like sauna or, or you know massage or whatever we tend to say don't do them immediately after exercise because there is a little bit of a blunting of the beneficial inflammatory response from exercise if you do that really so i i sometimes go into our outdoor infrared sauna for 20 minutes certainly in the summer perhaps half an hour to 40 minutes after a, a workout's finished is that too soon so it's interesting with infrared sauna because there are so many biochemical processes that are going on just by having an infrared sauna. The way that infrared, I mean, sauna is fascinating in terms of the science behind it because the essence of what you're doing is turning on and off certain signaling proteins. And you can do that within infrared sauna. You can trigger a lot of healing responses by the way it turns on certain genes and pathways. It depends what effect you're wanting to achieve. So I'd say if you'd done, for example, a, a weightlifting strength and conditioning workout in which the entire point is to create an, a stress that your body would then adapt to, having a sauna after that's probably not the ideal because you're wanting your body to do the adaptation. You don't want the infrared sauna to help your body with that process. Interesting. But if you're doing a HIIT workout, boxing workout, a lot of cardio, a lot of endurance cardio plus, you know, impact. Actually, 
beneficial nature of that workout is far broader than just the muscular damage or all of those kind of adaptive responses it's to do with your cardio system and a lot of endurance chemistry which isn't so much offset by the infrared and in essence by doing the infrared you might be supporting your joint health which will enable you to go back and do that boxing workout on the second day or or the day after as opposed to having that latency of delayed onset muscle soreness which means you can't then go back out and do it yeah very interesting it's all about like what are you trying to achieve and how yeah how quickly can you recover to make sure that you can keep going back out there to do it without causing more stress than you can cope with. And that will vary according to what other stresses you're going through. So if you've got a cold or you're going through a lot of work stress, it's probably not great to go and do a load of stressful cardio activity. So maybe just do this infrared sauna because that's a little bit of a stressor, but actually a healing stressor. So it's, it's about what you're doing within your life, not just within those exercise moments as well. Yeah. I want to come back to hormesis and, you know, whether you get into that positive stress in small doses, the dose always being the poison, but coming back to the recovery. So when we're sympathetic dominant for whatever reason, am I to understand it's fairly, the body left alone with minimal stressors will recover fairly quickly. Yes. Because I guess that's what we were kind of designed for, you know, when we were you know, ancestral living involved, lots of stressful events, but also a lot of recovery, none of the modern stresses that we have. So in a matter of hours, you could have recovered. With sleep. So sleep is like the healing drug for all life. So I think, yes, with the right ingredients, which just includes rest, relaxation, the conscious removal of that stressor. So like actually being aware that stress is over and rest, just sleep rest. Bodies can quickly recover. Yes, it's it's not mm. even from months of a highly stressful time so there's a a work deadline and you're pushing or you can recover within a a reasonable period of time provided you do actually choose to rest yeah which is what I think people are lacking in now adequate rest adequate recovery I don't necessarily think we're doing too much but we're just under recovered Mm. and I talk a lot about as well the concept of the energy jar which is that if you like and I'm holding up a glass here for the benefit of you listening all our energy comes from one place of course it's not that simple and there's no receptacle inside us but it comes from one place it needs to be rationed accordingly and if if you've had a stressful month going through a divorce redundancy whatever it might be considerable amount of that finite resource will be depleted So what you're left with, is that going to get you through a busy weekend? Should you do a workout? Should you go for a restorative walk? I really encourage people to look at their energy in that way. It's a finite resource. There's a limited amount of it in that jar. What's already been drawn from that? What have I got left and how best can I use it? Mm, Absolutely. And it's it's so true. And I deal with a lot of type A entrepreneur-driven patients in my practice who have a health goal of some description or an athletic goal and they'll get back at 1am from a meeting and they'll think it's a sensible choice to go out and do a run because they haven't fitted in the workout that day and I'm like no return on investment let's think about this in a like what benefit do you get from the hour of sleep that you lose because sleep will actually probably do you more good in that specific scenario Mm. so definitely like your energy job I might steal that one for use (laughs) <laughs> you may borrow it yes <laughs> I'm going to be borrowing a few things from you so it'd be a, qu- a pretty good deal <laughs> so let's talk about the difference between eustress and distress so the different forms of stress we can put on the body an example of eustress would be a workout providing you've got that adequate recovery distress I suppose I suppose none of the stresses on the body are distressful apart from disease mm-hmm. yeah because the dose is the poison, you know, if you've got this stressful event, but then you, you meet the deadline and you come home and you put your feet up and recover, it's okay. That stress has been managed. But 
What do you think on that, the difference between eustress and distress? I think the difference, I suppose we should quantify the difference as in the modern difference. So today, in today's world, I think the difference between eustress and distress is the cumulative nature of the eustress. So you can deal with a certain amount of normal stress and you can always bring yourself back into a sort of centred space in the middle of your life, if you like. But if those stresses just add up and become cumulative, back to your jar analogy, but I have a stress bucket analogy, as in you can fit so much stress into that bucket, but as soon as you are overflowing that bucket, there are consequences and that's when it turns into distress. Mm. So it's an additive function, I think, in modern life. The disease element is interesting because one of the biggest things that go into that stress bucket can be viral load, toxic load, bacterial load, pollution load, all of that kind of in the background. In essence, our bodies don't tend to be unable to deal with all of those. We've got quite good detoxification organs. We're quite good at coping with like modern life in terms of the chemicals that we're exposed to, etc. It's the top layer on top of that, which is everything else. So typically, and named it before, it's the under-recovery part of it that leads to a lot of problems within the rest of of the stress bucket system because you could say that the under recovery shrinks the stress bucket itself if I can get my words out yeah yeah and you just touched on it we both work with chronomics which is a fairly young company that look at epigenetics so the effects of things like a couple of things you just mentioned pollution and the environment on our genetic expression Mm. but I think that's an interesting one because most people will understand that that chronic stress can be caused by overwork some will understand it's under recovery by you know, a prolonged and elevated stressful event, like a divorce negotiation or something of that sort. And the issue is more the, the duration that you're carrying that load for, that you're under that stress for, isn't it? As much as the type of event it is. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And I hope you've really enjoyed part one of my conversation with Victoria Fenton. If you want to hear part two, we're going to need to wait a week, I'm afraid. But what we'll talk about then is how to spot the signs of inflammation and crucially, what to do about it so if you've enjoyed this conversation hang on for seven days make sure you're subscribed and you'll automatically get part two downloaded into your itunes or wherever you access the podcasts thanks very much for listening interested in finding out what your health iq is jump on our website www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on take the test It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.